upon your throne, ruling all power and authority. We think of um, the seconds or the third song we sang, How Great Thou Art, and we believe that this morning, that you are ruling because you are great. And for the Christian this morning, as we close with that song, it is well with our souls. For the Christian, yes, Father, it is well with our souls. And we thank you for that because the Lord Jesus Christ died for those who are saved in this room this morning, and he saved their souls. But on the other hand, those who may be sitting amongst us this morning who are lost, their souls are in grave danger, grave danger of this place that the Bible calls hell. Is a place where those who are the enemies of God, those who reject Christ, is where they reside even now at this very moment, those who passed away just this time that we've been here together. Many of them did indeed go to hell. And we pray, Father, that this morning, that as the preacher comes, as he opens your word for us this morning, that, as always, that the saints will be edified in your word. And we pray also that the, that the sinners, those who are lost, who are here, they might be, here again, as we prayed earlier, pierced through their very hearts, that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. For all Scripture is given by inspiration. All of it is useful for doctrine. Every scintilla, every jot and tittle is useful for us today. And Father, we thank you for that. And even now as Dean comes, we pray again that the Spirit will take your word, that he will indeed apply it to the hearts and minds of those who hear. We ask and pray all these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. This morning we'll have part one, at least in a series or at least a study, uh, concerning what we call church polity. And uh, oftentimes it has uh, been said that. Uh, this subject is often thought of as a bit of a boring subject, but uh, actually when you consider uh, a great priority that this subject takes in the New Testament, it, that is not something that we as Christians should ever think concerning the subject of church polity and the order of the church and the way that Christ has ordained that his local churches are to function. This morning in particular, we want to look at the subject of a plurality of elders, and then, Lord willing, down the road, we can move on to different subjects, such as the nature of the New Testament church and how it all works together. But all of these parts, plurality of elders, the nature of the church, and who is to lead, and so forth, they all fit together just perfectly, as God has ordained it just perfectly in his word for us to function. You know, a lot of people, when they consider the subject of church leadership, what they believe about it, they've maybe inherited simply through tradition, whether if what they believe is accurate or not, or they just simply believe what they have seen done in the local churches, and maybe they haven't really thought the scripture is so clear 
on these matters. But when we actually examine the New Testament, we see very clearly that there is a specific way in which God would have his churches to function and a specific way in which God wants his churches to be led as well. So before we begin our study, just so maybe we can consider how important this is, ask yourself this question. What I believe about the local church and what I believe about church leadership and church polity Is it because it is simply what I have inherited through tradition, what I have seen in my own local church or any local church that I've been in in the past, or is it because I see what the New Testament says very clearly about these subjects? And think about this as well. If you are talking with another Christian about this subject, would you be able to show them from Scripture why you believe what you do and why your particular local church practices what it does? This study can at least help us in this way to examine Scripture point by point and see why we are to do what we do here, at least at least what we strive to do in our local fellowship here. One theologian has written this. It appears likely that there was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age and that the organizational structure of the church is no essential element to the theology of the church. That is the thinking of some. But when you consider such important subjects, uh, take, for example, baptism, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and you think about how much the New Testament speaks about them, you know, the New Testament speaks at least the same amount on the subject of church leadership as it does on those other subjects. So if we consider those other subjects important, and if we are sticklers to understanding those subjects rightly, we should do the same with this subject as well. There are some even who make the shocking claim that there is not to be any leadership at all in the churches, recognizing only a universal church in the New Testament. Now, I believe the universal church is absolutely there, But there is also the local churches that are to function and serve the Lord together until he returns. When we turn to the New Testament, we see that each local church in Scripture had men in positions of leadership. These positions of leadership are even referred to as an office in Scripture in places such as 1 Timothy chapter 3. So this is something God has ordained for his people. The first part of our sermon is just going to be four parts. Number one, plurality of elders. Plurality of elders. We see in the New Testament that the churches were always led by a group of elders. There are four words in the New Testament that refer to this one office. Some would debate that and say maybe only three, but we'll look at those. Let's look at the first three at least first. The first, the Greek word presbruteros, is translated in the New Testament as elder in places like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, which was read a few moments ago. And the word means president, presider, or moderator. There's a second word that is used concerning the subject of church leadership, and that is episkopos, which is translated as bishop or overseer in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. That word simply means superintendent of the working force. Number three, there is the word porme, which is translated as pastor, meaning shepherd 
or one who cares for the sheep. It's translated as pastor in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Now, there's another word, didaskalos, which is translated as teacher. Some believe that refers to the pastors as well. Some believe that it doesn't. But just so you know, it also occurs in Ephesians chapter 4. But these terms, at least the first three for sure, all refer to one and the same office. In fact, they are just different terms that present to us different aspects of this office. And we know that just by the meanings of the terms. Let me show you to begin with this morning a few passages where we see these different terms are used to refer to the one and the same office in the New Testament. First, look with me at Acts chapter 20, if you would. Acts chapter 20. And uh, in our study of Acts, I'm sure Mike is going to get to this passage soon. But here we see Paul meets with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And notice the terms that are used. First of all, in verse 17 of the chapter, it says, And from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So the elders there, there's that Greek word, presbyteros, translated as elders. Now, a little bit later on now in the passage, you're going to see these other two words that I mentioned earlier are used of these same men, the elders. Look, if you would, at verse 28. Paul tells these same elders, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you episcopus. That's the word translated, overseers. To poimeno the church of God, that is to feed or to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So the same word translated in scripture as pastor, pormeno, episcopus, bishop or overseer, and the same word translated also for elder is all used there referring to the same group of men that Paul meets with in Acts chapter 20, the leadership of the church at Ephesus. So there's one example. Second, the passage we just read earlier, if you would look at 1 Peter chapter 5 again, and just in the first two verses of that chapter, we see the same thing here. Peter writes to the elders, now look there at verse 1, the presbyteros in the Greek, the elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now look what he says in verse 2. Poimeno, that is, feed or pastor the flock of God, which is among you, taking the episcopeo, the oversight. So there again we have all three terms used just in those two verses. Episcopeo, poimeno, Presbyteros, elder, shepherd, taking the oversight. Overseers. So you see here, brethren, how these terms are used in reference to one and the same office. One more example. Just back for a moment in Titus chapter 1. Here, of course, Paul is writing to Titus, who is ministering to the churches on the island of Crete. And he tells to Titus that this needs to be done. Elders, leadership needs to be appointed in the churches. Look what he says in verse number five. He says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, 
and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed these. So there you have again the office of elder. But now in reference to this same office, look what he says in verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, and he continues on with the qualifications. But you see here, the same office is referred to as that of an elder and that of a bishop. So again, we see the same terminology used for one in the same office. So I think by this time, brethren, it's quite obvious. There is one office of shepherd in the New Testament, and these three different words are just different ways of referring to this one office. Three examples here of these terms being used in this way in Scripture. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, it breaks it down really well for us when we consider the local church, because there, there are three groups of people that are mentioned. When Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1 and verse 1, he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, now listen, to all the saints, that is, to all the holy ones, to all the believers in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. So you have there the congregation, and among that congregation, you have two offices, bishops and deacons. You see the same two offices in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The bishops were to be appointed, and the deacons were to be appointed. And you always see, in both situations, there was a plurality of each that were appointed. And notice here, this is very important, you have a plurality of deacons and a plurality of bishops there, in those offices in the church at Philippi. The bishops, the deacons, the rest of the congregation, well, of course, Christ is the head of the church. We know that, Ephesians 1.22, Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the head, and under him you have the local church, and then we all function as we are supposed to. Now, when you consider this, brethren, obviously there is no scriptural evidence whatsoever for the concept of a pope. I mean, think about it. Peter, Rome claims Peter was the first pope. Peter never calls himself a pope. Peter just calls himself a fellow elder. We saw that in our passage this morning. At the same time, there is no concept of bishops or priests in the New Testament according to the Roman Catholic use of those terms. The bishops in the New Testament are simply the local pastors of a church, while all the believers are priests, who offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 11, I believe it is. You see there very clearly the believers are believer priests. I'm sorry, that's verses 5 and 9 of 1 Peter 2. So the believers are believer priests, and the bishops are simply the pastors of the local churches. Now, what's interesting too, brethren, something to consider, is... uh, the importance of church history when it comes to this subject. We see what the New Testament teaches very clearly. But have you ever considered, after the New Testament was completed, the earliest Christian writings that we have after the New Testament was completed, what do they say concerning the leadership of the church at that time? Some of you who are with us in the morning of church history, you've already seen us. We've already read a lot of these documents, and we've shown this because we want a a church that is literate when it comes to this history. But I want to read you a couple of the earliest documents that we have. 
And I want you to see what they say about this. And this is important because now we can identify ourselves with these ancient believers of the past. It's important for us to do that. We don't want to just kind of be in our modern day bubble where we don't understand those believers who have come before us. But let me just quote to you from just two different documents here. Number one, there is the document that is referred to as the Didache. It dates about AD 100. So we're talking about four or five years after the book of Revelation was penned by John. It's simply a discipleship manual. And in section 15 of that document, it says, Appoint therefore for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord. Same thing we've already seen. Same thing that Paul mentioned to the Philippians. You have a plurality of bishops, you have a plurality of deacons, and those are the ones that were ordained and appointed. Second document is the letter of Clement of Rome as he writes to the Corinthians. Now, that document dates about A.D. 95. That may be even older than the last book we have in the New Testament. The, the, the letter of Clement is not obviously a book that belongs in Scripture, but it was a letter that was written from the church at Rome to the church at Corinth because a younger generation had arisen in the church at Corinth. You know what they did? They cast out the elders out of the church. And so the church at Rome writes to the Corinthians, not as a mother church having authority over the church at Corinth, but as simply another local church. And they counsel them, bring back your elders and do what is right in that way. But notice what it says in section 42. And thus preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe. So, how is the local church led? Very clearly. Bishops and deacons. That was true of the church at Rome. That was true of the church at Corinth. In fact, in history, we see that the church at Rome was led by a group of elders until at least A.D. 140, until at least 50 years after the New Testament was completed. Also, section 54 of that document says this, Only let the flock of Christ live on terms of peace with the presbyters set over it. Presbyters was simply another term for the elders. So we see here the churches were led by a group of elders, bishops, presbyters. That was the case in the earliest days after the New Testament was completed. Now, what's also interesting is it didn't take long for a different practice to develop. And I'm not going to get into all the details of why that was this morning just because of the sake of time. But what you see very early on in the second century in the letters of Ignatius of Antioch is you see a different practice started. That was the office of Bishop Presbyter became split into two different offices. So now the local church has started to be led simply by one bishop for each congregation. And under him were the presbyters or the elders and then there was the deacons. So not only two offices anymore, now it changed to three. And then later on, there would be more and more different things added. By the time you get to the third century, presbyters are referred to as priests, and it just goes on and on from there. But this is where this began to develop. Ignatius' letters in the early second century testify to this, but let me just give you a couple examples. When he writes to the Ephesians, he says, be subject to the bishop and the presbytery. So you see there the difference. You don't see that in the New Testament. You don't see that in the earliest documents, but now you have the bishop and the presbytery, two different offices, bishop, one, presbytery, a group. 
And then to the Smyrnians, he says, See that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery as you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. So you see there, brethren, very clearly, now you have three offices that began to develop. And Ignatius is writing these different letters to the different local churches. And he was a godly man, but you see these different local churches began to be led in this way. But he writes to the church at Rome. You know, you find the church at Rome doesn't have a bishop. Still had a plurality of elders. So this was slow to catch on, but eventually that's simply what was happening. So there's a testimony from church history concerning that. But when we come to the New Testament... The scriptures always present us with a plurality of elders as the ruling body of the church. This practice in the New Testament was cross-cultural. It didn't matter if the church was primarily Jewish or if the church was primarily Gentile, you had the same practice. So, for example, the church at Jerusalem, primarily Jewish. What do we find in Acts chapter 15? We find that elders were there leading the church at Jerusalem. Or when we consider the church at Ephesus, primarily Gentile, what do we see when we come to Acts chapter 20, which we read a little bit earlier? The Ephesian church was led by a group of elders. So it wasn't as if there was different practice according to the different cultures. No, it, when the gospel went out, when churches were planted, the same practice was there amongst all the churches because this is what God directed the apostles to do and the way that the churches were to function. Let's just go through a list of verses just to see these examples. If you can turn with me to some of them, we can go first of all to Acts chapter 11. Just show you one verse at a time where you can see this was the practice. First of all, let's talk about the churches that were primarily Jewish. The churches of Judea and the surrounding areas. Acts chapter 11, verse 29 says, Then the disciples, every man according to his ability determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, verse 30, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So notice, where did that offering get sent to the churches and who was to take up that offering? The elders of the churches. So the churches in Judea, you just see the testimony there, were led by a group of elders. Concerning those same churches that were primarily Jewish, James writes to them in James chapter 5, verse 14. And he says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. So there you go. The church, the churches of Judea, those that were primarily Jewish, those that James writes to were led by a group of elders. Secondly, the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, if you'd like to go there, we'll look at a couple of verses. And of course, you may know the context of this chapter. You have the Jerusalem Council that was taking place, a gathering of church leaders to discuss this issue of the relationship between Gentile believers and the law of Moses. But look who was involved here at the church in Jerusalem. You had apostles and you also had the elders. Verse 6 says, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And then if you move down to verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So you see who's involved here. You got the apostles, yes, those whom Christ ordained to be apostles, but you also have the elders and then you have the whole congregation was also involved in this as well. So that was the case at this church in Jerusalem, where the first church that was planted as the new covenant people of God. 
just back a chapter in chapter 14. Let's look now at some primarily Gentile churches. The churches in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. You see, it's the same practice amongst all these cities. Acts 14, look at verse number 23. Look at after these churches were planted, what they did. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord on whom they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So look at all these different cities. It doesn't say that they appointed a bishop in each church. You notice that. Or an elder in each church or a pastor in each church. It says very clearly it was elders that they appointed in each church. So we see here this was the practice. Number four, the church at Ephesus. Now, we saw them earlier. We're not going to go back to there in Acts chapter 20, but you see that Paul called to them the Ephesian elders. But just another testimony to this exists in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because if you remember, Paul was writing to Timothy, who was ministering in the church at Ephesus. And he writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 17. He says, Let the elders, plural, that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So you see there, a group of elders was leading at the church at Ephesus, and what was one of their primary responsibilities? Laboring in the ministry of the word, laboring in the word and in doctrine, studying, teaching, preaching, ministering in that way. So we get a glimpse here of one of their responsibilities as well. Another example is uh, number five, the church at Philippi. We saw that earlier, Philippians 1.1, Paul writes, to the bishops and the deacons, along with the whole congregation. Number six, the churches on the island of Crete. We saw that earlier, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Elders were to be appointed in those churches. Number seven, the churches in northwestern Asia Minor that Peter writes to. In 1 Peter 5, we saw that earlier. He exhorted the elders among them. That's the churches in all the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. That was the case. And we don't see a difference in any of these churches. We don't see, well, the bishop here and the elders there. No, it's just the same practice all throughout as the groundwork was laid and as the foundations were laid in those churches. But some other examples oftentimes we might not think about because we might just kind of read over it. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 just for a moment. Here, the words elders, pastors, bishops are not used, but we see here a group leading in the church early on at the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul writes, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You notice he writes the, the plural, them. He doesn't say he, but them. So again, you have a group there leading even at the church at Thessalonica. And finally, of course, Hebrews 13, 17, obey them that have the, rules, the, the rule over you. And he goes on to explain there how they keep watch for your souls. They will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. So again, there you have, as the author of Hebrews writes to those Hebrew believers, he's talking about a group of leaders that were uh, leading and ministering to them. So I, have, I just have there nine examples, at least nine examples of different passages in the New Testament where we see this was the practice and there's never any contradiction to this. Every time the leadership of the church is mentioned in the New Testament, it is always mentioned as a plurality of men. This was not something that the early churches practiced lightly, but again, it was an apostolic directive. Remember what Paul wrote to Titus? 
ordain elders in all these cities, Titus 1.5, as I appointed you. So this wasn't just do what you want, do what seems right to you in that circumstance. No, it was always this is what the apostles commanded to be done in the churches. So brethren, if scripture is sufficient for teaching us about important issues such as baptism, such as spiritual gifts, such as the Lord's Supper, obviously it is sufficient to guide us and instruct us in these matters also. Now let me clarify something, though. In saying this and in showing clearly that this is the teaching of the New Testament, we're not saying that churches who are led by just one pastor are not true churches. We're not even coming close to saying something like that. We're not saying they are inferior churches. We understand that there are some situations also where maybe there can't be a group of elders at the time. Uh, That doesn't mean that they're not godly people. That doesn't mean they're not godly churches. It doesn't mean that our church is better than theirs. But we're just simply asking, what is the practice that is laid out for us in the New Testament? What do we see? And while there are men who are very gifted in preaching, teaching, shepherding, maybe have very strong personalities in many ways who are very gifted at shepherding a congregation, it is always more healthy to have a group than just one because of the responsibilities that one man has to bear. So if it is possible, the aim, the goal, should be to have a group of men rather than just one. So we must be willing to, of course, set any traditions aside if they are not exactly biblical, and we must remember what God has revealed for us to do in his word. And whatever he has revealed to us to do in his word, we know it's always what is most spiritually healthy for the churches. We know that. So we have to trust him in that. So that's the first point of the sermon, a plurality of elders. That's what we see was ordained in the New Testament. Now, number two, as we're studying this subject, let's consider common objections. It's always good to expose ourselves to objections to our views on things. It's good for us to do with our children to expose them to those things as they grow older so that they understand why they believe what they do and how they can defend the truth. But let's think about some common objections. Let me just give you four of them. Number one, it is said that when Scripture refers to elders of a church, it is simply referring to one pastor over the many different house churches of a city. Okay, so the idea is you have a city that has a house church, a house church, a house church, a house church, and each one of those house churches has a particular bishop over it. First problem, Scripture never gives us any clear examples of house churches in a city being governed by one pastor. It simply is not there. Also, second, Scripture never presents us with the concept of different house churches in a city. In fact, what you see is, is that there is one church in every city. So, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. The church of God, which is at Corinth. Notice, not churches at Corinth, the church at Corinth. And this is the case all throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, we read about the church of the Thessalonians, or the church at Thessalonica. That's what we always see. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, right? You think of the church at Pergamos, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna. Yeah, the church, the church, the church at one city. The only time you see churches mentioned in plural is maybe 
when it's referring to different congregations in one region. Like, for example, Galatians 1-2, the churches of Galatia. You see, because you had different cities in those, that region, and so you have the different churches of each of those cities. But we never read any examples of different house churches in one city, much less house churches that are simply governed by one pastor. You simply don't see that. We see one church in each city with a plurality of elders or pastors governing and shepherding the church. Different sections of a local church may have met in different locations, yet they were a part of the one church in a particular city governed as a whole by the group of shepherds. Second objection. It is said that since God often raised up one man to lead the people in the Old Testament, such as Moses and Joshua, this is the pattern that local churches should follow today. There's a couple problems with that. First problem, neither Moses nor Joshua's position was ever meant to be a continual institution, even amongst the people of God in the Old Testament. And this leads us now to the second problem. After the Israelites themselves entered the promised land and settled in their villages, it was both the local elders and the priestly family that became the leaders. So there was no longer just one man. It was a plurality of people plurality of men leading in that way. And that didn't change until this people sinfully desired a king just to be like the other nations. So that objection simply does not hold water. You could argue that Moses represents Christ, the chief shepherd of his church, not simply the pastor of a local church either. But regardless of that, there is no evidence that Moses or Joshua represent one bishop leading in a church in the New Testament. Third objection. It is said that James, that is the Lord's brother who ministered in Jerusalem, and Timothy and Epaphras were examples of a local church being led by one pastor. Well, there's some problems with that as well. First problem is with James. When people say that James was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, this is simply an assumption with no biblical evidence whatsoever. Now, we know from Galatians 1.19 that he was an apostle. And we know from Galatians 2.9 that along with Peter and John, he was one of the pillars of this church in Jerusalem. Not the pillar, but one of the pillars. His official position, though, is never revealed to us in the New Testament. He was an elder, we know, with other elders. That seems to be clearly the case, but there's no reason to think otherwise. But you can't point to one verse, one passage in Scripture that would lead us to believe at all that James was the sole pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Second problem concerning Timothy. Brethren, Timothy simply was not a local church pastor as we would think of in the traditional sense. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, we see that he was an evangelist. Acts 19.22, we see that he was an assistant of Paul. And throughout the New Testament, you see that he was always under Paul's authority. Same was true when he was at the church at Ephesus. He was under Paul's authority ministering there. There's no evidence that in Scripture, Timothy was the pastor even of the church at Ephesus. You don't see that anywhere. In fact, if Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, why was Paul so concerned that bishops be ordained in the church at Ephesus 
in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That wouldn't make any sense. If Timothy was the sole leader, why did other bishops have to be ordained in that church? Also, 1 Timothy 5.17, we read that earlier. What the elders who lead among you, what they're to be considered worthy of double honor. There's already elders there in the church at Ephesus. 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul writes, receive an accusation against an elder. Don't do that unless it's on the basis of two or three witnesses. So elders are already there in the church at Ephesus. Paul met with the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. There is nothing in the New Testament of Timothy being the sole leader, sole bishop of the church. And then third, Epaphras. Many of us might not be familiar with him, but you can read about him in the New Testament. Colossians 4.12, you can read about him. He was another assistant of Paul. It's oftentimes claimed that he was the pastor of the church at Colossae. Again, no evidence of that whatsoever. We know he ministered in Colossae. He ministered at Laodicea, Hierapolis, possibly. But when you read about him in Colossians 4.12, it seems that he left Colossae and had no intention even to return. So much like Timothy, he was an assistant to Paul. So again, those objections, again, just don't hold any water. Final objection, and this one's a little different, but it's kind of a testimony. If you have to resort to this sort of argumentation, it maybe shows that your position isn't really valid. But here's the claim. When you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and you read about each angel of each local church out of those seven churches that Christ has a message for, uh, it is said that the churches were at first led by a group of elders, but by this time in history, in the 90s, AD 90s, the churches shifted to just being led by one bishop. And each angel of each church in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is the sole bishop of the church. Well, there are some problems there. Number one, when we read real history a little bit ago, we saw that that was simply not the case early on, right? The churches were not led in that way. They were led by a group of elders in that time in history in the first century. But also in Revelation, those angels are never said to be pastors. They're never said to be church leaders at all. And we can maybe debate on exactly who they are. I'm not saying that I know for sure. But uh, to say that they are pastors, I think is probably stretching it. They are referred to as stars in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. Stars symbolically refer to those angels. Jesus tells us they are stars. We do see in Scripture oftentimes that stars refer to angels. For example, Job chapter 38 verse 7 talks about how the morning stars were praising the Lord at the creation and the sons of God and the morning stars sang together. So there you have an example where stars refer to those angelic beings. But again, uh, Hebrews 1.14 talks about these angels being ministering spirits. They send forth to, to minister to God's people. So you see that they do have a lot of activity that, that, that they perform in the churches. 1 Corinthians 11.10 talks about uh, because of the angels. And 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul charges Timothy before the elect angels. So angels do have a connection to the churches. So it may refer to a particular angel that was guarding those churches. We don't know. But we definitely cannot say that these were pastors of churches. So, brethren, these are some of the main charge or the, the main, you could say, arguments against this teaching that the church should be led by a group of elders. I think you can see that they really don't hold up under examination. Let's move on now to the third point. Let's look at main instructions given to elders in the New Testament. 
This is really important. It's important for the elders to know this. It's important for the churches also to know what are the responsibilities of these men. I mean, if they're going to be shepherding us, they are responsible to fulfill these duties. So let's look at this. Number one, and you can turn to 1 Peter with me, chapter 5. Let's look at some verses. I feel like I'm just reading notes to you and constantly talking without actually going to Scripture. So 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's look at some uh, verses again just briefly. Let's look at instructions given to elders. Number one, they are charged to oversee the congregation, and that's basic. 1 Timothy 5.1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight. So the elders have to know what's going on, they have to oversee, they have to be able to give guidance, that is one of their responsibilities. In verse 3, Peter here warns that they are to be very careful of being too authoritative because, you know, there is a delicate balance because elders have to be on guard, right? At times they have to see that discipline is practiced with an unrepentant sinning member. So there is a level of authority, right? But at the same time, they cannot allow their sinful flesh to lead them to do things that they ought not to in an authoritative way that goes beyond Scripture. That They have to be careful. Of course, that's just in our sinful nature to do that whenever we're in a position of authority, men and women, in their lives, whether if it's dealing with your children or dealing in your marriage, whatever it may be. So we have to be careful about that. Look at what Peter writes there in verse 3. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. They can't be weak. They can't uh, refuse to have any authority, authority at all, or the enemy can just pounce right over them, right? But they have to be careful to not act as if they are lords over the people of God. Number three, they're to be clothed with humility, along with the rest of the congregation. Look down at verse five here. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. That includes the elders who are mentioned in this passage. And there again, they have to be careful. This is one reason why we read in 1 Timothy that a new convert should not be put in that situation uh, because they can fall into the snare of the devil. They can fall into that pride that Satan fell into. So if, if they struggle with a want of being noticed, if they struggle with a desire to, to lead over God's people in an authoritative way because of a prideful problem, uh, they can't be in that position. They have to be very careful of that. So they must be clothed with humility in order to accomplish that ministry well. Number four, they're to feed or shepherd the church. We see that here in verse 1 or verse 2 of this passage. We also saw it earlier back in chapter 20 of, in verse 28 of the book of Acts. Remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders? Feed or shepherd the church of God. So they're to take care of the sheep and desire that they walk with the Lord rightly, according to the word, and they're to seek to lead them in that way by example, by teaching, and by serving. But go back to Acts chapter 20, because we're going to look at some other responsibilities there. We're going to look at number five. They're to be on the alert for the constant threat of false doctrine. Paul warned the Ephesian elders of that in chapter 20, Let's look at verses 29 through 31. Look at what he says, and this must have been so sad for Paul 
to have to tell the elders this when he had ministered in Ephesus for years, when he had loved these men. But he says in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So he tells them, be on the watch. This is going to happen. Uh, Even when things seem to be going well, just beware, something's going to happen. Some false idea, some unbiblical way of thinking, some false teaching is going to come in. You have to be on your guard. He makes this very clear. Not only are people going to come in, but he says people already in the congregation itself are going to rise up and start to speak these things. This is why, brethren, we should always rejoice when there's new conversions that take place. We should always rejoice when we see spiritual growth in God's people. But we also got to remember, time will tell what professions are really genuine and what are not, even amongst the leadership of the churches. I mean, how do you have a man like Dan Barker, who was for 19 years a pastor, and now for well over a quarter of a decade has been one of the greatest enemies of the Christian faith? How do you have a man like Bart Ehrman, who is also one of the greatest enemies of the Christian faith, who previously was a professing born-again Christian? Time will tell. Time will reveal who is the genuine and who is not the genuine. Paul warns them here, you must be on the alert. Number six, we see this here also in this passage in Acts chapter 20. The elders are to follow the examples of Jesus and Paul in hard work, being generous and helping the needy. Look at verse 35. Paul says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So this is an attitude that they are to have in themselves, this generosity, this hard work, and this helping those who are in need. Number seven. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I do want to read the verse in James chapter 5 and verse 14. We see that the elders are responsible to pray for and anoint the sick with oil. James writes, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We know sickness is part of the fall. We know that when someone becomes a believer, it does not exempt them from sickness. It does not exempt them from disease. It does not exempt them from tragic circumstances. And so the elders are to be ready to minister in those circumstances. Finally, the last one, number eight, the elders are to live at peace with the congregation. Could you imagine having elders who never strove to live at peace with the congregation? You probably have a pretty uh, bumpy ride in your church. But 1 Thessalonians 5, listen to verses 12 and 13. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So that also requires the, the elders to be at peace. Scripture says, insomuch as lies in you, be at peace with all men. It's not always possible, but that is to be striving in the bounds of Scripture. You are to be at peace, and the elders are to be at peace with the congregation. So these are eight responsibilities of elders we see in the New Testament. Now, two things are clear from looking at these responsibilities. 
First of all, elders are not simply representatives of the people underneath the pastors of a congregation. At times, churches think that way, that you have the pastor and then the elders simply represent the people. They don't teach, they don't preach, they don't minister the word. That all goes to the pastor. Again, you simply don't see that. You see all these responsibilities that are given to the elders. You see that they also taught and preached and so forth. So this is what we see in the New Testament. Also, the elders in the New Testament churches are not identical with the Old Testament elders who are primarily rulers and judges of the people. Nor are they completely identical with the elders of the Jewish synagogues, which developed in that intertestamental period, that, that gap, that 400-year gap between when the Old Testament was completed and until John the Baptist came and the Lord Jesus Christ came, where he had the Jewish synagogue. There are some similarities, but they're not exactly the same. The elders in the New Testament churches are spiritually qualified shepherds who lead, teach, and protect the congregation. Okay, now our fourth and last point in our sermon. Let's look at the, really, the one that the elders really like, right? We're going to look at responsibilities of the congregation to the elders. So pay, up, uh, pay attention and listen. Number one, the congregation must remember that it is a noble work, not because they're to think that the elders are just some great people or something like that, but because the office itself that Christ ordained, they are to take it seriously because, and as they do that, they're going to understand that, well, you don't want just anybody there. So you as a congregation, if you take that seriously, the office, you will also be concerned if you see somebody's supposed to be going to be in that office that shouldn't be. You, know, you should take this seriously. When you consider your family's being ministered to, you're being ministered to, the office itself, you should see it as a noble and important work. Remember 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, Paul said, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So it is a good work. It is a noble work. It is something that is very important to our Lord and for his churches. Number two, and this again is the responsibility of the congregation. They must understand the qualifications for eldership. 1 Timothy 3.2 says a bishop then must be, and then he goes on with the qualifications. You don't want a congregation that is not aware of what the elders are supposed to be. And really, when you look at the qualifications for elders, besides the qualification for teaching, uh, those qualifications are to be the aim of every Christian. It's not as if that the elders have these more qualifications here and everybody else is down here. No, really, it should be the same. The point is, is that you, if you have a prospective elder in the church and they're really not living faithfully as they should be, they should not fill the office. But it's important for the church to know those qualifications. What happens if one or two of your elders dies and uh, you're going to have other elders in place? Well, the church has to be literate concerning the qualifications. Number three, <clears throat> the congregation must be ready to examine prospective elders as to their qualifications. Now, of course, the church leadership is involved, but the church also is involved in knowing these things as well. Look with me there in 1 Timothy again. Look at verse number, uh, chapter 3, <clears throat> look at verse number 10. Now, you deacons too. Uh, the deacons, the, the, the diaconate, that's an office. And the deacons are examined. The elders are examined. When, when, when Paul is writing to Timothy here in this chapter about both of these offices, look at what he says in verse 10 concerning deacons. And let these also first be proved 
Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. So who is the, who are the other ones who are to be proved? Well, the elders, the bishops that were mentioned earlier. So the elders and the deacons are examined. They're watched for a time. They must be proved first. They have to be people who have been proved to be trustworthy, loyal, faithful in the local congregation. Uh, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, you might want to turn there and look at verse 22. In regard to appointing church leadership, Paul writes to Timothy, Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. So remember, hands would be laid upon the elder, the one who was being ordained or appointed into that office. And Paul reminds Timothy, don't do this too quickly. They must be proved first. They must be examined first. Okay, fourth responsibility. Call for the elders of the church if seriously sick. We saw that earlier in James 5.14. But what's interesting about that verse is it puts the responsibility on the, the congregation or on the one who is sick or on the family that's involved. So the, the elders might know about it. They might suggest, should we come over and pray? Should we come over and anoint with oil and so forth? But oftentimes because of their work, they're not always going to notice everything. And so it's the responsibility really of the congregation, those involved, to call for the, the elders to come. Number five, the congregation is to protect elders from attack and false accusations. First uh, Timothy 5, if you're there still in that chapter, you can look at verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, in a day of so much scandal, this is very important. You have scandals. You do have church discipline that needs to be exercised at times in the church when the elders get out of line. But remember, brethren, there's a lot of false accusations that come up as well. So the elders should be protected by the congregation until the situation is examined. And an elder is not to be disciplined unless it's on the basis of real evidence and real witnesses. You see that principle throughout Scripture. So this leads us to our sixth responsibility. Discipline elders who sin and seek their restoration and repentance. Just look at the next verse there, verse 20. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. This is one, I think, this is probably one of the most difficult verses to follow for a church in the New Testament. I mean, think about how many churches refuse to practice church discipline at all. But here you have if an elder is in some sort of unrepentant, scandalous sin, he's to be publicly rebuked in the church so that the others are kept from sinning. God uses that as a means to put fear in us and that is to be practiced. And so even elders are to be disciplined if they step out of line. Number seven, elders are to be supported financially. You see this in 1 Timothy 5.17. Now, Mike spoke about this, I believe, a few weeks ago. This will not always be possible in a local church. So in ours, we have three elders, and one of them is part-time supported. That's really all the church can afford. At times, elders may choose not to be financially supported for different reasons. And so they are ready to work. They're ready to have a trade and so forth of their own. Uh, but if, if the church can afford to do it, and if it's practical for the, church, the elders to be given to that work to shepherd a congregation, especially if a congregation is a bit larger, that is to also be done. In First Timothy, you see that honor is linked to financial support. You see that when the widows were to be supported, that means they were to be financially supported. It's said of this in elders in 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 
especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So that financial support is to be ready for those who should have it. Then the eighth responsibility, and there's only nine here, but the eighth responsibility, love and be at peace with your elders. And we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, we're to be at peace with one another in the local church. And so we're always to try to sense that is there something wrong here? You know, are our attitudes toward each other not exactly what they should be? Same is true in the relationship between elders and the congregation. It's one that is to seek to be, be at peace even when there are some disagreements. And then finally, number nine, we talked earlier about Hebrews thirteen seventeen, but obey and submit to the elders is there in the New Testament as well. So you see that as they lead, that doesn't mean, again, that the elders are lording it over the congregation, but in general, as they go about shepherding, the congregation is to faithfully follow their leadership. So these are the responsibilities of the congregation to the elders of the church. So brethren, what we've seen here so far in our sermon is four very basic points. Number one, plurality of elders. We see this was according to the New Testament. Number two, we've seen common objections to the teaching that the local churches are to be led by a group of elders. Number three, we see the responsibility of the elders to the congregation. Number four, we see the responsibility of the congregation to the elders. So these are all biblical directions for the church throughout history and for today as well. Very practical for us. But let's have a few more practical points before we're finished. I think that a lesson like this, there are some doctrinal things that we look at that are important, but as we're studying through them, you see a lot of practical points because you're told this is your responsibility and this is your duty and this is what you're supposed to do. That's true, but I think in a study like this, there are also some other practical points that we could mention. Let's do that and then we'll be finished. Number one, brethren, as we go through a study like we have here this morning, We have sought to be faithful in understanding what scriptures reveal concerning this subject. Now, because we've done that, there's a principle here that we need to consider. It is always good for us to be willing to go to scripture in order to have a right view formed in our minds concerning any subject that we are dealing with. Any subject that we are dealing with. We ought to be sticklers when it comes to that. Like what we've done this morning, we've looked at the scriptures, we've examined, we've talked about objections. We should be willing to do that with any subject that we are dealing with. Like the Bereans of old, we must always be willing to search the scriptures and to go to them for right beliefs and practices in every area of life, whether it's the family, whether if it's our business, whether if it's the local church. Let us always go to scripture to have a right worldview. And you know as well as I do, it doesn't matter how long you've been converted. You need to do this (laughs) almost every day because you're always confronted with your sinful tendencies. You're always confronted with the false ideas of the world. So you always have to go back to the word of God to have a right view on what you are to believe and the way that you are to think and the way that you are to react to certain things. Now, in light of this, consider a few things, brethren. First of all, our desire as a church should be to hold to healthy biblical doctrine. We can't ever let that go. We must always desire to hold to healthy biblical doctrine. When we do this, we will find that this will also line up with orthodox historical 
teaching throughout the history of the church as well. Now, you have some different beliefs about some things amongst faithful believers throughout church history, but if you are simply go to the scriptures and you examine scripture, you will see that in general, your beliefs will line up with the historic church for the last 2,000 years. And so we should ask ourselves, am I being biblical? And am I also being historic? Am I lined up with the believers who have gone before me in the ages past? Or am I compromising or always seeking after some new thing? That's very dangerous. If you do that, you'll find yourself to be very unbiblical and very, well, how can we say, ahistorical. Just concerning what we looked at today, listen to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 26, paragraph 8, just to see how did our examination of the New Testament line up with what these scholars said in their statement of faith. Quote, a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ are to be chosen and set apart by the church, so-called and gathered, for the particular administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he instructs them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. Now notice a few things here. Very clearly in this statement of faith, back in 1689, you have the two office view laid out. You have the bishops, also known as elders, and you also have the deacons. So their examination of the New Testament was the same as ours. And it's a blessing to be able to identify with them, to see these men who went before us and say, yeah, they saw this in Scripture as well. This is also why we had those early documents quoted earlier. We could see in Clement's letter to the church at Corinth, and we could see in the Didache. We see the believers held to the same things that we're talking about. So that's very, very important. And then also, if you come across some of these weird, strange, false doctrines that we have at times heard about where, well, in the beginning, there was elders in the New Testament, but later, as the church matured, there is no need for elders anymore, and we don't have any of that anymore. That is simply not biblical, and that is not historical either. That, again, it's seeking after some new thing. It's, it's going astray from not only Scripture, but it's going astray from what the believers who went before us believed in. If you ever see yourself going away from the historic church, if you ever see yourself, more importantly, going astray from Scripture, you know you're going a wrong direction. Also, in light of this, if this is all true, what we have seen in Scripture today concerning a plurality of elders and the duties of bishops and the responsibilities of the congregation, this means that God has given to us a great privilege and a great requirement. That in a fallen and spiritually dangerous world, as we tread the narrow way and labor to glorify Christ in the world, as we labor to spread the gospel, to make disciples, and to stand for righteousness, we are to be a vital and important part in a local fellowship of believers. We see that because really, if we're not, we cannot fulfill these responsibilities and duties that we looked at. Or to put it another way, in a day of horrific apostasy and rebellion against God, as foretold in the New Testament, we were foretold in the New Testament of days like this, where there would be a great falling away. In a day of promotion of evil, 
and promotion of perversion, destruction of marriage and family, mutilation of children, persecution of Christians, idolization of human government, the destructive lies of atheism, Darwinian molecules to man evolutionary theory, climate change propaganda, public school indoctrination centers, womb to tomb agendas from the daycare to the nursing home, propagation of the culture of death from abortion to population control to euthanasia, and of course the collapse of Western civilization itself that is happening right before us. In light of all this, brethren, we have to remember we are, you could say, refugees in the family of God. We are refugees from what is going on. We are refugees in the church of Christ and in the new covenant community. And as such, by God's grace, we are preserved from all these lies and all the evil that we see going on around us. There is safety, brethren, in the new covenant community. We cannot fulfill this privilege and duty without real commitment to the church and to the scriptures and to what we have even learned today. So the church, the gathered church, should be like a spiritual refuge. It should be a blessing to each one of us. Our gatherings ought to be a spiritual refuge, biblical, faithful, godly church, and not, of course, a worldly church, just conforming to the spirit of the age. Second, and uh, second to last practical point, we see the great responsibility of shepherding the church. And this, of course, is in many ways convicting to the elders We've already quoted many verses, so I'm not going to quote any more concerning this, but we see when we consider this as God's one religious institution. His one religious institution is this new covenant body. The elders have the responsibility to shepherd and defend the flock against the destructive doctrines, worldviews, ideologies, and practices of the fallen world system, even in our own day of the secular world system and motivate the people of God to do the will of God into the, in the world until Christ finally brings all of his enemies under his feet, we see this is a very great responsibility. For the community of the saints, the church to be well-ordered, well-counseled, well-instructed, well-disciplined, we also see why a plurality of men is so responsible. That's a lot to fall on the shoulders of one person. Finally, number three, Last point, as we come to the supper, consider this, brethren. When we come to the supper each week, we are reminded about the sacrifice of Christ and how Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for the church. And it is a time of self-examination. Every week we come to the supper and we have to remember, am I walking right with the Lord? Am I living in unrepentant sin or not? It is a means of sanctification. But also now, as we come this morning, maybe we could also ask all of ourselves, How committed am I to doing the will of God, the will of Christ for his church, whom he died for? I mean, if he died for this body, if he died for this body, am I responsible in fulfilling my responsibilities and my duties in this body that we have looked at in our sermon today? Let us consider this and let us go to prayer together. Father, we thank you for the word of truth. And Lord, although our minds oftentimes are of limited understanding concerning the teaching of your word, we thank you that you have laid it out so clear for us. 
We pray, Lord, always help us to be diligent in the study of it, diligent in the application of it, faithful in living this out,